BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. If you know the comedy of George Lopez, you might feel like you know his grandmother, too. George Lopez bases a lot of his act and in the early 2000s, his hit TV show on his own life with his Mexican-American family in L.A. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, a very personal conversation with George Lopez. Hey, George, welcome to the show. It uh, makes me smile to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. I'm excited, too. Yeah. So, George, where, where did you grow up? I was born in the General Hospital, probably six miles away from here. And uh, I I didn't know my father. So when I was born, the nurse comes in and they said, "Uh, what are you going to name him? And my my mom said, Anastasio, that was the guy who we thought was my father. He looked like Ray Fiennes. I don't look like Ray Fiennes. Uh, And it said, Anastasio, my grandmother goes, no, 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 no. We're not going to name him after the father. We don't even know if that guy is the father. She goes, well, what are we going to name him? My grandmother looks around. She goes, what's today? They go, what do you mean? And the calendar, what's today? They go to the calendar, it's St. George Day. So his name is gonna be George. And when I bought this house in the living room, it was was, uh, charcoal and I told the contractor, hey, clean up that fireplace, you know? And he said, when you get home, look inside because there's a conquistador tile in there. And when I came home and looked inside, it was a tile of St. George from the 1920s. No, love it. But I grew up probably eight miles away from here. And And where are you right now? In Los Feliz. You are? Okay. Oh, interesting. I, By the observatory. Interesting. And so as, was your was your mom and her whole family, were they uh, L.A. folks? Um, yeah. Yeah. My grandmother was born in El Centro, border town out here. So I'm fourth generation. So when people say, you know, uh, you know, he's down for the culture, I'm fourth generation, but I'm down for the culture. That A lot of people think, you know, what part of Mexico are you from? And I'd say, like, L.A., like, like the general hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. I love that. You know, the assumption, you know, the assumption is just, I mean, once you realize, forget about it, it makes an ass out of you and me. That, that, that's, that's, that's nothing, you know, that's, that's a cute quip. But as soon as, as soon as we, as people just in the world, stop assuming that we either know everything know everyone or know everything about someone will be in a better place. George, what were you, what were you like as a kid? Like if I had met you uh, in high school and we've been buddies, like, like what were you like? Let's see. Well, you know, I love sports growing up. I was an only child and all my, all my friends had either brothers or brothers and sisters. And, and I was raised by grandparents. They all had their uh, biological parents. So I always uh, spent a lot of time alone. spent a lot of time with my friends and, um, I was kind of an introvert. I think I had some pretty good teachers that saw that in me and in high school used to use me to either go run an errand or to hand out papers or to clean the chalkboards because they knew that even standing there handing out papers was difficult for me. So I had a teacher that took an interest in me and uh, not knowing I wanted to be a performer or anything, but just because he saw such a shy kid always in the back, always in the corner that, uh, you know, as a senior, I went and thanked him because... uh, you know, I couldn't even raise my hand. George Lopez, I would just be, he's right here. Somebody would answer for me. He's right here. So he saw that and kind of, and as a senior, I went over there and I said, hey, man, now, 
you know, thanks for looking out for me. And he said, yeah, I saw you. And I, I thought, you know, this kid's like a smart kid. He's funny. And you know, I just thought I'd try to bring something out in you. Why do you why do you think you were so quiet? Was were, were you nervous? Were you shy, or or why were you why were you like that? Well, you know, I never had any any adult figures to show me the right from wrong. Everything was just always wrong. Everything was always criticized. And if you quit once, they they thought you would quit on everything. So that's like assuming, you know. So, um, I mean. I, I don't know why I wanted to play the accordion. So when I was like 11, a bunch of us kids were taking accordion lessons. And then you pay like 10 for 10 lessons and it's like $45. So I get my grandmother to pay for accordion lessons in Granada Hills. And then I'm awful at the, I'm dyslexic. So imagine trying to hit things with your fingers when you can't even make them out in your head. And I was awful. And that thing weighed like 50 pounds. So I'm lugging around this thing I don't want to these lessons I don't want to go to. So I quit with maybe four lessons left. And anytime I wanted something, she would say, like the accordion. So uh, she thought I was going to quit at everything, but I had to hear about that accordion, about everything. Can you get another beer? He's not going to finish it like the accordion. <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of criticism made me, it put up a, you know, now you realize through therapy, that it put up a wall, which made me a great, which eventually made me a great performer because I was able to shut off any emotions, but also it created a wall between me and my family and me and, you know, not having a father and having a mother that wasn't around and everything that hurt me, which everything hurt me, but it created a wall of just protection, which eventually I think helped me in some regards of my life, but then hurt me in the other half. So it's like a 50, 50. Um, I think I can assume you're saying it helped you as a performer, because it, it it allowed you to handle criticism or or it flops, but are you saying it hurt you in in love and marriage or or, or how are you saying that? Yeah, I know you, well we don't see healthy relationships. So when kind of everybody leaves, you know when everybody leaves and your fat uncles would stay, they'd leave and you know my mom would come back and live with us for a little while and then my, you know my grandmother raised me then she'd leave. So we just we turned out through therapy that. I would leave on someone before they left on me. So I would quit the relationship or I wouldn't call you back or I wouldn't invest in you before we had a, either a relationship or a friendship and then you left. So, the, you know, the at the golf course, I play golf with these guys and they're not members, but they said, I'm the king of the, hey, George, what's up? Hey, and just keep moving because I just, I don't engage. You don't engage, why? Because, because I'm you, just, you know, so used to being on my own. I'm not looking, I'm not, you know, at 59, I'm not looking for any chit chat or any new information. I think I know more than I, than I should. And the things that I, that people talk about are just kind of so mundane. I just try to keep myself like Bruce Lee, like water. I don't want anybody dropping any other, other, other in my water you, you know what is, is interesting that you that you say that george i feel like i hear that from a number of comedians that as funny and as lively as you guys are on stage i feel like i hear a number of people are loners or a little bit on their own is that is that a classic thing or is that just you and a couple folks i know yeah it's a classic thing but i think it's not it's not as important i think as some people say you know johnny carson was an introvert richard pryor was an introvert he was shy so it's a trait, but you know, but we're here because you want acceptance. You want to be liked. You want to, you want to be on stage when you're not on any type of stage, either in your family or in the family lineage, and they, you know, minimize you and 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 you know, put you to the side, and you don't feel important. Well, what better place to, could to, could you feel important in front of, you know, all these people on this stage, and the lights are on you, and you're the only one talking. So it's not as uh, important or it's not as explosive a detail, I think, as some people make it out to be. Interesting. And so, George, when did you start doing comedy? Uh, I started doing stand-up in... I started writing jokes at at, um, at 11. And then in high school, I... Uh, check this out. I went to Radio Shack and I bought a microphone stand in high school, 11th grade. And then I stole a microphone from my high school. It's right here. I always have it with me. This is the microphone stand that I bought at Radio Shack in San Fernando. And this is the microphone that I stole from the audio visual department. And it still says San Fernando High. Sketch, it says LA 
USD Unified School District. So I would stand in front of the mirror in my bedroom and talk into the mirror using that microphone. And were you, did you know you were good? Did you? I mean, did you did you have confidence around your comedy game? No, you know, um, I didn't. I wasn't really good for uh, maybe almost maybe ten years. But the thing that you know, it's funny. I was talking to some other comedians about that. This is the more intriguing question: is how does someone who's shy or an introvert, not just me, everybody, go to a place where where you sign up, and since you don't know what you're doing, you don't do well as a performer for years and years. And why do you keep going back if every time you go, it's more missed than hit, but you still keep going back? That, that's that's the that's the question is to ask is like, why did I keep going back when it was so hard for me? And I, I don't know. And you know, being a quitter with the accordion or on Friends or in baseball, which I loved, you know, I've told a story. I had a baseball coach that told me in in 12th grade that I was a quitter and that would I would never amount to anything because when things got tough, I packed it in. I remember he used the term "pack it in." And uh, um, when I started to play golf, I really liked it, but it was it's a hard it's a hard game. And when it got hard for me, because it's hard for everybody, I would quit. And one time when I quit, I got in the car and I could hear my coach's voice say. You know, you pack it in when things get tough. And I thought, man, you know, I started thinking about things in my life. And I was like, this guy's true. It's true. So I went, you know, maybe I was out of high school three or four years. And I went over and walked over, wait till practice was over. And I went up and apologized to him for the way I behaved in, in high school. And I've never, ever apologized because in our family, if you had a disagreement with somebody, you just avoided that person or you didn't talk. But nobody ever said, listen, I, you know, we're, we're brothers or we're sisters. And I don't think we should be. Um, you know, not talking. I mean, it's been so long since I saw you. I love you as my sister. You know, accept my apology. Nobody ever did that. You just, you just didn't talk. You know, one time I was in the, my grandmother was older, and I used to take her on Wednesdays to the grocery store, and we're going down this aisle, and she says, "Turn around, turn around, turn around." I go, "What are you doing? Turn around, turn around." And she grabs the cart from the wrong side. I said, "Where are you going?" And we went around the corner. She goes, "That's my sister." And I said, "That's your sister." I didn't know you had a sister. I don't. And then I walked around and passed her, and it looked like a younger version of my grandma. I said, even if I didn't know that was a sister, I would walk by that woman. I would say, listen, I don't know who you are, but you look a lot like my grandmother. You know, I'm her sister. She, she, didn't, she told me she didn't have a sister. So to my grandmother, everybody that crossed her was dead to her. They're dead to me. So, you know, you just kind of have this, they're dead to me. Uh, kind of vibe, you know, with people, which is not healthy. None, none, of, none of it was was healthy. I would say none of it was easy. None of it was healthy, and none of it made me a better person. I just I didn't become a better person just until the last few years. <laughs> George, were you at any point headed on to college, or what was your path after high school? What what happened after high school? Yeah, after high school, uh, you know, I I. I was just a, you know, a 2.2 grade point average. And I was dating this girl who was a year older than me. And she knew what I wanted to do. Everybody knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a comedian. I, I didn't know what to what level. They just knew I wanted to be a comedian. And I remember that uh, she talked me into into uh, signing up for night classes at uh, Valley College. And my grandma talked me into taking electronics, which I never got. So the first class, I buy these books, like three books, $105. And um, I, I sat there and was just lost from the beginning. And everybody's writing things down. I'm looking around and going, what could they be writing down? I don't hear anything that sounds important enough to be written down. And then after like three hours, the teacher says, we're going to take a little break and stretch your legs and get some water and come back. And as everybody was going back, I hung back and I said, I don't belong in there. Like I'm over my head. And then I said, what would what do I want to do? Like, what, what do I want to become? And what would I do for free? And it was stand up and I'd already been doing it, but I quit at it. So I said, I'm going to go back and do stand up. So the hardest decision or the hard one of the hardest things to do was to tell my grandma that I dropped out because it's quitting again. And to tell my girlfriend that I didn't want to go to those classes and that I wanted to be a comedian. And they both, would, you know, they liked each other, but they just told me what a mistake I was making and that it just was the wrong thing to do. And what could I be thinking? It's not a real job, whatever, whatever. But everybody that, not everybody told me that. I didn't talk to that many people. 
But as soon as I decided that I wasn't going to quit, I was ready to accept the good or the bad that, that would have come with either having a career or not having a career. How did you make ends meet uh, in those early years before you made it? I worked at a factory in Van Nuys. I worked with my grandmother. Um, I worked with my grandmother in Van Nuys on, uh, at this place called Sperry uh, Aviation. They made the, the, the radar equipment for airplanes. And uh, Richard Pryor lived on Parthenia. The house that he got burned in was literally around the corner from where I worked. So every night after work, which is in a little bit, a mile and a half out of the way or a mile out of the way, I would drive by Richard Pryor's house either before work or after work and then go and drive home. And then one afternoon, as I come around the house, the tail end of a Rolls Royce is going in and the gates closing. And I said, ah, I just, I just missed him. And uh, he had an orange tree hanging over the street into Parthenia. And one night after work, I, I saw the oranges and they were always there. I just never saw them. So I said, hey, Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor oranges. So I'm jumping up, trying to, you know, grab an orange or two. I take my shoe off. I knock one off and I knock a little orange that's not ripe off. I go home the next morning, I'm like a scientist, I cut them in half and I squeeze it. I drink the orange juice thinking that if I drank this orange juice from the oranges of Richard Pryor's tree, that somehow, you know, I would be, da, 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 you know, just become the funniest guy in the world. And uh, it's funny because, you know, I said the only black person that my grandmother ever let in the house was Richard Pryor through VHS. Like, you know, she rarely opened the door for anyone. But the fact that I had black friends drove her crazy, you know. And I said, as she said, how can you be friends, you know, with, I said, oh, what the, 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 I'm darker than them. What the hell are you talking about? I'm darker than, so, so she was that person. I mean, there was, a, you know, people are still that person. It's not a bad person. That just, she couldn't see anything. So, um, uh, you know, once I realized that my grandmother was kind of like this uh, reverse muse, Anything I said to anybody about her or on stage was just hilarious because that's what these people were. They just didn't realize that their vision was like this. They couldn't see. You, you know, it's interesting. When I hear you say that, she sounds a little bit like she was like Archie Bunker. She was like... Yeah, totally. Am I, am I right? She, meaning that, that, that she was a, a little crabby, a, a little irritable maybe, uh, a little narrow. Yeah. Huh. And why do you think she was that way? Do you think her world had been small? Had her heart been broken? Like, like why, why did she operate in the world like that? I know that she, um, she wore an abusive relationship with her first husband, almost like a badge of, of courage, you know, and she would say, yeah, I took 19 years. I took beatings from that man. He beat my kids. Yeah, I said, well, why didn't you go to a hotel? And she would yell at me, that's a, a hotel. This was in the 50s. I said, that they had hotels in the 50s. I, look, all right, you know what? I don't want to talk to you about it. You're, you're, I don't want to talk about it. Just, and then, uh, um, so the, the, the African-American thing, when I started to work with her, and I started to kind of figure out why does she not like, you know, African-American people? Well, she works side by side with this girl, woman named um, Arlington. And she, my grandmother drank Sanka, hard to think because that's supposed to calm you down. And she put a mark on the Sanka and would check the mark every day. And then she found out that Arlington was going earlier and, and taking some Sanka for her and making coffee. So I traced down that my grandmother didn't care for African-American people because one was stealing her Sanka. So all these years later, I figured it comes out to somebody stealing somebody's sake. That is that is crazy. Now, did your grandmother live long enough to see you on stage and and winning and doing well? Yeah, um, you know it's funny because uh, I I saw some pretty good comedians before they got, they got shows and uh, their act was in um, in the show and I would think you know I don't see you know anything that's tra that can translate to a larger audience and. Uh, when I finally did get my show the night of the of the pilot, the pilots lo lo run long because you're, you're just going to be able to do it that one time. So, you know, it's 3.30 in the morning and we're driving back, driving her back to the house I grew up in to where she still lives. And from Warner Brothers down to San Fernando is probably like eight miles and not a word from her. So as we're starting to get off the off ramp, I look over at her and I just see her looking straight ahead. And I said, so what'd you think, Grandma? And, and she said, you want to know? And I said, yeah, I want to know. What do you think? 
she looks at me on the, in the sideways like this in the car and she says, if I would have known that it was going to take that long, I would have stayed home. Is that really what she said? Yeah. Yeah. It, but her, her heart was bruised, George. She wasn't able to, to be generous of spirit mm-hmm. in the way that ideally someone would be. Because when I'm hearing that, that that's someone who, who's so bruised that they are they are putting their trauma on the next person. Um, so, so, you know, um, years later when you, when, you know, in relation, my marriage didn't work out, you know, I was going to therapy as a couples and then as by myself. And then you start to realize that, you know, I married a, a bit of a version of my grandmother, but also that what she knew I couldn't give her, before we got married, she knew I had trouble with communicate communicating as a couple, but they still go in because they think you can they can change you. Well, you know, they, she couldn't change she couldn't change me, and it became a bit of a, of, a, of a, it hurt the romantic part of the relationship because when someone is trying to get you to become somebody you don't want to be, the next thing you don't want to be is intimate with somebody who's trying to change you. So. Um, it destroyed that part of, of the marriage. And, you know, that's a huge part of marriage is love and, and, and having a partner. But it, when it became more business-like, it, it really left nothing to the marriage. So we got divorced. I've been divorced maybe nine years. And, uh, you know, I live by myself and I, 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 I did the, you know, it's funny. My therapist said, well, you know, what were you doing when you were 12? And I said, uh, you know, you had to have, be having some fun. I said, Dave, I was, I was in my room trying to play the guitar. You see the guitar behind me and uh, um, watching TV like I'm doing right now. So, you know, as much as he told me to get out, I, I try to get out every day, especially with the pandemic, I get out. But, but I understand the flaws in my, in my personality. And, um, and it's not like I'm trying to speak for a whole culture. I'm just happy that through everything I've been through, I've been able to speak for myself. Are you dating now? Um, I'm not. I'm not dating. Now. You know, I, I think at 59 and not really still not understanding what somebody needs or if they require um, more attention that I'm willing to give them. I think that this portion of my life, I've, it's funny. I was with Clint Eastwood at a, at an event. You know, he he and I used to be friends. And then uh, he says to me, "You ever think you're going to get married again?" And I said, "Absolutely not." And he was probably 86 at the time. And I said, "What about you?" And he looks at me and he goes, "I think I'm going the rest of the way alone." <laughs> um, but you know, George, something tells me I'm a little bit of a romantic. Um, something tells me that you are primed for a Hollywood ending. You're primed for finding someone wonderful. I, I don't know. I have a good feeling about this. I've got a good spidey sense. I, I think something, Okay. The, the minute you're not looking, you know, you're going to bump into something that's right for you. Okay. Well, I would say the hour I'm not looking because I'm, I'm usually not looking. So it won't be a minute. The, the hour you're not looking, someone's going to creep into your life. But you know, it, it's, it's, it, it, it it's difficult because you know, like I know I know you understand. You know, you when guys marry their moms, they they don't realize it. So I'm living a a mirror vision of my childhood just as a 59 year old man. I'm alone in my in this house, bigger, much bigger than that. But I mean, I have the guitars around me, and I play golf and I watch TV and I'm trying to learn songs that are from that era. Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover, some Growing Up by Bruce Springsteen some doobie brothers it's like nothing from right now (laughs) that's wild well you 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 know now how much of this is the pandemic like if the pandemic wasn't going on you think you'd be out and about a little bit more you know what i just this is how remote and removed i am i just found out there was a pandemic like an hour and a half ago (laughs) 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 i think it'd be a little bit I, i mean i hardly go out so you have people that thankfully you know run some errands for you but uh, I, it, you know, even after the pandemic, I'm, I'm still going to live like the pandemic is on because I was living like there was a pandemic before, you know, I'd go to, you know, I'd pull up to get some coffee. And if there was two people in there, I wouldn't go in there. So, you know, it's, it's still the same. We 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Tell me how you finally got your big break. Like, how did you break through? Because that is an interesting question. Well, I guess two questions there. One is, to your point, why did you keep pushing even when it wasn't working? I think you may have kind of answered that, but I'm still curious to hear it. And then two, like, how did you get your big break? How did you end up winning? I I met someone, by the way, the other day who said uh, he used to come down to the Nike Superstore and he used to get you shoes back in the day when you were still trying to make it and he still remembers you from back then. So anyhow, how did you... How what did was you that guy's through? name? What's that guy's name? Garrett. What's that guy's name? Garrett. That's right. There was one by Barney's Beanery. There was a Nike uh, uh, shoe store there. Yeah, I remember Garrett. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the, first part, the first part of the answer is I didn't feel like I was better than anybody else, but I did feel like I was different than everybody else. I felt like I was different than my relatives. Um, even though we were estranged, I, I, felt, I always felt I was different than my friends. Not better because I w- it wasn't better. Not richer or more well off or or I just felt different when I looked at them and I felt myself. I just I just felt different. So um, in the late '90s, uh, I get a message from somebody saying, "Hey, this producer wants to see you." So on this Friday night, came to see me. The guy went away. I never talked to him. And they're like, "Did you see the guy?" I said, "No, where'd he go?" A whole year later, he comes back calls me again and says, you know, I have this idea, me and my me and my producing partner, and we'd like to come and see you. And they finally got the producing partner to come and see me. It was Sandra Bullock. So Sandra Bullock came to see me at an improv out here. Then afterwards, she came backstage and she said, you know, I, I had an idea for a show, but it was more about the teenagers. But after seeing you, I kind of want to kind of go down that road. You know, your grandmother sounds crazy or, you know, you, you're, the way you grew up sounds wild. And, uh, um, so I met with her and then we went down the road. She had just been doing Miss Congeniality and, um, she had lost her mother. So she was in a place where she was a little bit dis- disillusioned by, by Hollywood after losing, you know, somebody so close to her. And, and when she saw me, she said that she saw somebody who just had so much spirit and was so willing to do anything that was required to show somebody they were funny. So. She kind of became like my fairy godmother. And, and you know, that could only take you so far. I was prepared. I still worked during the day as hard as, you know, or harder than anybody else. So, um, you know, somebody can take, I don't care if that was the Pope, you know, some only somebody can only take you so far. And then you have to take yourself the rest of the way. But, you know, she gave me an opportunity and I was always ready when the opportunity presented itself. So um, it just became, we just started doing this thing and step by step, just 
you know, getting the episodes, the first four, getting renewed, keeping the show on the air and working hard year after year and then going through all the stories of my life and just continuing to work. You know, I have a daughter that's 24 who thinks that, you know, when you have some success that things get easier. And I told her they get harder. I mean, it's harder to, to, to maintain, you know, this is 41 years for me and, and it's hard. And a lot of the guys I'm friends with never got an opportunity, but it's always been hard for me. So hard for me is normal. Hard for them is insurmountable. Hard for me is just a normal business day. Interesting. George, I want to stay just a little bit longer on that Sandra Bullock story, though. Did did you did it happen right away? I mean, literally, she comes and she sees you perform and you guys sit down and she says, I'm going to make this happen. Like, was it like um, was it that immediate? It took a it took a calendar. It took a calendar year for us to get a meeting with Bruce Helford, who was doing Drew Carey. He created Drew Carey show and, and then he uh, worked on Roseanne. He's doing the Connors right now. So he took the meeting. He said, I didn't know who, who George was, but I took the meeting because I wanted to meet Sandra. And then I went to see George and Sandra showed me to my seat. And I thought, that's, that's interesting that this guy has Sandra Bullock acting like an usher and ushering people to their seats. And then he saw me and he, he saw what Sandra saw, somebody that was funny and had a unique perspective. And then we met and then the president of Warner Brothers came to see me. Then the president of ABC came to see me. And then the next day, Bruce called me and said, are you sitting down? And uh, I said, man, I'm always sitting down. And then he told me that, uh, that you know, ABC had, had uh, bought the show. Wow. So your life changed just like that. Yeah. In a year and a half. Year and a half. And so why do you, Sandra, a lot of people will look at that and they'll say, what was the racial element here, positive or otherwise? Was there, was there a racial element to it? And, and if so, how? Well, you know, I think the element was that she lived in Austin. And, uh, you know, Austin's a very cultural city, a very smart city. So I think she saw the people as hardworking, determined people. And she, you know, working in Hollywood and even becoming disillusioned with it. If you look at the fact that there weren't any Latinos on TV then, you know, there hardly is now. But back then it was, there was, there hadn't been even a history of any Latinos on TV really. So I think that's what intrigued her is, you know, let me try to put this guy on TV because that guy on TV doesn't exist. You know, so, um, with African-American comedians who I know all of them, but you know, there's, you know, Dick Gregory and there's, you know, um, Flip Wilson and Bernie Mac and Eddie and Arsenio and Cedric and all DL, all those guys. But with me, there was, you know, Freddie Prinze and maybe uh, Paul Rodriguez who, did, who had some success early, but nothing like, you know, the level of success that I've had. So it wasn't like you had the, the, these mentors or tutors to follow, you know, um, I've never followed really anybody, and I respect those guys for trying. Um, but you know, uh, I don't. I didn't use any of the, of any Latino characters or performers other than you know Freddie Prinze and maybe Desi Arnaz for my inspiration. Interesting. So, um, it, with with the African American uh, uh, comedians. Were those were, were they mentors to you? Were they friends? Were, were were they models to you, or did it feel like that was their own thing and you were on another path? No, you know I've known these guys a long time. They they were good friends. It's funny that they that they were more friends than than they were tutors or mentors because they, they I already had it kind of down. You know, Arsenio and I have been friends since 1989. I talked to him yesterday. Cedric uh, played golf with him a couple days ago. Anthony Anderson, same thing, played golf. So. You know, um, since those guys golf and I've known them so long, I see them more than I would see the guys that I grew up with or any other any other people. So, you know, at the club, they're like, you know, uh, yesterday the guy says, uh, he, this guy, he's a lawyer, he went to UCLA. All His four guys are, are white and my four guys are one Mexican and three African-American people. And he looks over, he's cool. And I go, uh, God, I wish I knew I more, I wish I knew more white people. <laughs> And uh, and then he, and then he goes he goes he goes no, he goes no you don't and then I said you're right I don't 
Uh, um, so, you know, what I love, I, I still remember seeing that Sandra backed you because the two examples in my mind were Sandra backing you and Kelsey Grammer backing girlfriends, uh, backing the folks who were doing that. And on one hand, I said, I love that there was this humanity that said, I see that talent. I see that hunger. I want to get behind it and make it happen. And there also was a realization that, is that what it took? Did it take a, you call it fairy godmother. Did it take a white fairy godmother in order to get a Mexican American comedian, a real shot. And is that a, just a good thing? Or is that, I don't know. Did you ever feel any way about that, that had it not been, been that it wouldn't have happened? No, I mean, I don't, I don't think the racial element her being white. I mean, uh, if anybody was going to help me that had any type of power in Hollywood, they were going to be, uh, they were going to be white. There wasn't a lot of African-Americans or and hardly any Latinos. So I never thought of it as her trying to do anything other than just take somebody who she felt could be seen on television. And, and I've never told anybody this, but at the end of the first season, uh, they do like the retrospective of the whole year. And then they put all the, uh, like the people who have been on the show and all the, wow, all the guest stars in the, in the clip. And the last clip is her and I uh, standing next to each other. And I look at her and she looks at me and I, and I just, just went like that. And you could see, you could see the appreciation. You could see the respect and, and the love in that, in just that one, in just that one moment, you could see how much I appreciated her and how much I loved her for believing in me. It's very, I mean, it's crazy. It's very difficult. I, I loved her too, George. I didn't even know you, but I loved her when I heard that story. I really did. And it's yeah. funny. I was saying to someone the other day, people have been talking about all the Karens, uh, all, all the, all the privileged <laughs> yeah. white women doing wrong. And I said, we need fewer Karens and more Sandras. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That, uh, that Absolutely. Sandra should become a term for for somebody <laughs> who really steps up, steps in, believes yeah. in big talent yeah. and uh, and makes it happen. So I, uh, yeah, I always, even from afar, I was not only rooting for you, but but I was rooting for everything that I felt like I was seeing yeah. uh, uh, there. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear it's as real as, as you're saying it is. I don't see her, you know, hardly that much anymore. But uh, she was always around, and, you know, when she did Blindside, you know, she came and did my talk show at that time, and, um, um, I, the, you know, she's, they've asked her, I don't think she talks about me anymore, but early on when they would ask her, and even maybe 10 years ago, they said, what was the proudest that you were of George? And, and she said, the proudest, uh, the thing I love about George is that I didn't create a monster, you know, that I didn't use my talent to create a monster. That's that's deep. Yeah, I love that. I really, I really love uh, hearing that. George, why do you think that after your show, because I don't think after your show, there's been another uh, sitcom on a major network with a Latino family or with a Mexican-American family. Am I, am I wrong? No. You know, the reason that there hasn't been one is that you have to, first of all, you have to kind of be good enough to be seen. And then you have to stay good enough and be better than good to stay in. And a lot of the comedians who have tried, uh, Christelda or, um, you know, Gateway Glasses on Netflix, uh, you know, the, the, you have to be a person who's lived, who, who's had stories to tell. You have to be your own best advocate. Not that they weren't. I'm not talking about myself. But, but you also have to get to a level that is high and then connect to something that's at the same level or you, or you catch somebody coming up. Like Sandra was already there. She pulled me up and I used my stories of my life. And it, the reason there isn't is because someone who's Caucasian or, or someone who's African-American is not going to write a story about a Latino family and then have it sell because they don't know what a Latino family is. So you see more how I met your mother's, and you see more United We Fall, or you see more um, uh, shows of that nature that maybe have one character, but mine 
had every leading character was a Latino. So interesting. And so why did it end? You know, it had already gotten to 120 episodes. 84 was the syndication number. And it was produced at the studio, uh, Warner Brothers Studio, for ABC. And ABC had Damon Wayans and Bonnie Hunt. I think uh, uh, um, Belushi was over there, Damon Wayans. So those shows, when they got into syndication, they were making money for ABC. My show was making money for Warner Brothers. So ABC said, why should we let this guy have this spot when we could put one of our shows in there? So it got removed for – that was one of the reasons. And then um, – it went into syndication the same year it got canceled. And then it became bigger in syndication than it was in um, in, in production. And very few shows uh, take that kind of success after when they're done. I mean, it's in the, one of the, maybe the top five of, of syndicated sitcoms. And it's never been off the air since 2002. And right now it's even on NBC streaming. They have it. So, you know, it's always had a home on TV. So... You know, when when people underestimated me or underestimated the show or, or underestimated the the uh, that a, that a Latino family could survive on TV, uh, you know, I, I dare you to put any show that was produced in 2002 and see where they are against mine. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80 join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer songwriter and composer John Batiste the all new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, tell me about your new special on uh, Netflix. I love the title. Yeah, so we'll do it. We'll do it for half. Came from the situation where I went to lunch with uh, Cedric the Entertainer and his family, and when I came out, uh, uh, I looked at the Hollywood Unlocked on Instagram, and it said that uh, Iran had offered a bounty for our leader, and it was eighty million dollars, I have to say allegedly. And then uh, I said, "We'll do it for half." And then uh, when I got home, I got these calls from my publicist. He's like, what did you say? I said, when? What? What happened? You know, you're, you're like everywhere. Like, what did you say? Did you make a threat against I said, I made a threat to print. I said, we'll do it for half. So um, it became a huge thing. And now, you know, in cancel culture or whatever, right-wing people, they wanted me thrown in prison and they wanted me to be taken off and they wanted just everything, you know. And then uh, uh, the Secret Service came to this, to this house to interview me to see if I meant him any harm. Uh, and you know, the, whoa, 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 whoa! The Secret Service came to your house for for a joke. Whether were, were you scared? Were you nervous? You know, allegedly, the only time I got nervous is when they asked me if I had any firearms in the house. So I said, um, "This house." <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I was I wasn't nervous any other time, but they were very they were, they were cool. They weren't looking to take me away. 
But if they had assessed that, I did feel like I was a threat. Uh, uh, and then when I got on stage, I said, you know, uh, they took it as a threat. I took it as an estimate. And then when Netflix, and then and then when Netflix came up, uh, Troy Miller, uh, that directs my uh, special, said, "Hey man, you got to call it. We'll do it for half because it's just it's just the best title." That, that's a that's a fantastic. Wait, now have you ever met Trump before? Oh yeah, I played golf with him in 2007, and then. He was on my talk show a couple times, and, and it's funny because you know people look at those clips, like I think Tito Ortiz, who's who's red. You know, I know Tito; I respect him for his political opinion. But he put on this clip where I was, you know, talking to Trump in glowing terms. Those talk show hosts, but also he hadn't been president or he hadn't revealed that other side of him. You know, his people were still intrigued and enamored with him. So they put it up as like, oh, look at even the left is is a, is a Trumper. Like this guy's like, I'm not a Trumper. But I'm surprised that a guy who I would consider my friend would use that as bait to bait other Reds, you know? So, um, you know, if I would have known that he was this person back then, I wouldn't have golfed with him, nor would have, have invited him on my on my show. So, um, uh, yeah, he, he's just one of those, like, he, he is what he is. Like, everything is the best to him, and everything, he didn't sleep, and everything's the best. And um, I remember we're looking around at, uh, at Bedminster and he's looking around and there's just this woods, you know, I said, and he looks around, and he goes, isn't this the most incredible golf course you've ever been on? And I'm like, maybe if you're a tech, you know, <laughs> it's like a it's like Lyme disease haven. It's like a, a heaven for Lyme disease. So I said, man, I played at St. Andrews. I mean, he's played around the world too, but looking around, I was like, no, it's not. I couldn't lie. It's like it's not the most impressive golf course I've ever been on. Did Did you think he was going to win in 2016? No, I didn't. But when he took the lead, he never he never relinquished the lead. So it was scary early because as soon as anybody got up, and once he got ahead in uh, electoral college, he never relinquished that lead. So it was a frightening day. Were you surprised that that he got one out of three Latino votes? You know, there's no, I mean, the thing about being Latino is they try to make this, you know, this one monolith, this one group of people. They try to make all of it, but we're different cultures. We eat different foods. We speak different languages. We come from different countries. We're not one, just one culture. And, and some people are red, you know, Cubans are Republicans, I think people from Spain, but however, anybody voted, even, even Mexicans, however, Mexicans, Americans voted. That's on them. I don't think we vote as the, I think the one mistake that candidates make is they try to separate the African-American vote from the Latino voter from just a general vote. But a vote has no color. So instead of targeting people of color to vote, you got to just make your message appeal to everyone and not just this message for these people, that message for people in the middle and then the message for the people over here. That's the mistake that politicians make, I think, or and businesses as well. George, you think real change is going to come from. Uh, the social protests, uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter conversation, or do you think this will end up being, even if we all hope otherwise, it'll be kind of a passing thing and that there won't be kind of meaningful change coming out of this? Well, I, I hope that innocent people stop being killed and because uh, that's been happening forever. But protests have been going on forever. You know, um, optimistically, I would say I, I would love to see it happening. But I mean, you know, we had the riots here in 92. We had riots here this year. We had the city burning this year. We had the city burning in Detroit, New Jersey, here back here in the Watts riots. So, you know, um, like they say, if you, if you don't learn from the history, you're doomed to repeat it. So optimistically, I would say I would love that because I had a friend of mine that got killed by the LAPD when he was 20. And of all the guys that I grew up with, he's the only one that's not around. So I would say that also, Mutually, as a community, you can't just blanket hate everyone. You know, you just have to have, I think, more respect is needed for just everything, not the police, but just more respect is needed for everything. And when you don't have respect, you can't have anybody or any group united when there's no respect. George, you see that, uh, uh, I'm sure you've seen that controversy about Shia LaBeouf in the movie that you're in that's coming out about whether or not uh, that's brown face. How do you see that? It's not brown face. Um, I, I, get, I get somebody trying to make the argument, but David Ayer, who is the, the director and who wrote it, produced it, grew up in South Central. He grew up on a street that was a very dangerous street. I have a friend of mine who is a uh, Caucasian guy and, and I never think of him as anything other than one of us. I never think of my friends as anything other than just my friends. So David saw that with his, his eyes. And when we met, 
most of the things we talked about were growing up in the hood. She sent me a message today, like like how how much the culture loves the movie. So, Shia's not in. He's not in uh, brownface. He's playing pretty much David Ayer growing up, and he was already in character uh, a month or two months before they even shot Tax Collector. We saw. We went to the premiere last week at a drive-in, and he came up to me, him and Bobby. And they were completely different dudes than they were two years ago. Shy had shorts on and yeah, a t-shirt, grabbed me. He's like, hey, man, I want to come to your house, man. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to you when we did the movie because he was he was locked in. I, I mean, I, in the movie, I, I unexpectedly take a swing at somebody and Shia moves like this. He didn't know it was going to happen. Nobody knew it was going to happen. He moves like this. And then after the scene, he went up, Shia went up to the dude and said, hey, man, did you, did you know he was going to hit you? And, I, and he goes, no, and I cut him, you know, I cut his face, I had a ring on, I cut him. And he was going to come after me. And he, and uh, the director said, whoa, 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 hey man, take it easy. I told him to do that. You did? He, did? he didn't do it on his own, I told him to do it. So he was in that deep that, that he didn't know the difference between, I mean, method. Somebody, Jim Carrey stayed when he did Andy Kaufman, stayed as Andy Kaufman for months. So Shia was creeper, you know, for, Maybe half a year. Wow. 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 You go all the way in. That almost reminds me of Donnie Brasco. Uh, you know, you go, I don't know if you see that, but you go all the way in, uh, as you're saying. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I love it. And you have to be that guy all the time. I saw him, you know, it's funny because one time I said, when we all were rehearsing and we were done reading the script, I said, now this is a movie. Like, this isn't a movie where, like, some car turns into a robot and then saves the whole world. And then I forgot he was in Transformers. <laughs> you know, so, so he's sitting there with his glasses on top of his head, but he's like this. And I said, yeah, that's right. He didn't react. I said, no, because he wasn't in Transformers. He's, he's, he's Creeper. He never acknowledged that I would have, hey, man, I was in that movie. He would have never did that because he wasn't in that movie because he was that character. But everybody was like, Ooh. and then, you know, he's like, he didn't react to it. Didn't, didn't register with him. I, I bet you Denzel's probably the same way. I bet you he's one of those people who goes all the way in. I mean, he's so he's so good. I mean, he, he, you think, you know, some guys read the script, they're still in the makeup chair reading their lines. This dude was that dude, those two guys. So, so you know, there's a lot of comedians that become actors and start to do dramatic because it's just an easier place for us to be dramatic because our lives have been dramatic. But in no way is my acting ability the same as Denzel's or or Shia's or Bobby's or anybody i just i just can pull from what i pull from but those guys as you know method as you know trained uh thespians you know their 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 pool is deeper than my pool i just happen to be surrounded by it um, hey george as we wrap up you mind if we do a quick rapid fire i'm gonna hit you with uh, five or six rapid fire questions and whatever comes to the top of your mind all right um uh i say kobe bryant you say what i say um I said, uh, devastating loss. I, I loved, I saw one of the things where I think you called him, what'd you call him? Uh, what was that nickname you had for him? Carne Asada. Because Kobe, he was named after Kobe meat, you know? Yeah. Uh, tender meat. Yeah. So, you know, our tender meat is Carne Asada. So, uh, you know, with Vanessa and Kobe and knowing the girls from, or knowing them even before they got married, that when he got his uh, All-Star Weekend here in 2010 and he got his hands put in Durama's Chinese, I started calling him Carne Asada and he signed this picture for me upstairs and he put, you know, Carne Asada, Kobe, Carne Asada. Yeah, great. I mean, all these guys are different off the court, you know, you're different away from your show, but um, it, 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 it's, it's, I mean, for all the families and just for everything, it's just devast a, a devastating moment and a, and a devastating uh, year of devastating moments yeah yeah i'm definitely gonna miss him as well i met him once or twice i certainly didn't know him like you did but i so uh i felt like even i learned from him and just his dedication his intensity and i would hear from it from other guys who were uh, in the league who would tell me all the time that they would show up early and kobe was already there they would you know come back and see him practicing still and just that kind of hunger and that focus and uh um, I knew a number of uh, interesting uh, business executives who would tell me that they would get a you know call from Kobe out of the blue, and he just had that same intensity trying to learn about what he was doing with them. So um, you know, may he rest in peace. 
once Shaq left and or during Shaq, I tried to go as many games. My show was just started. And then once probably Kobe had been in the league maybe 10 years, um, when you started to win, no, maybe five years, you started to realize how special he was. And when I got my show, Warner Brothers had seats and, you know, Andy Garcia and I became friends. And, and during that period between that and the championship in 2008, I said to myself, I'm going to go and try to see him play as many games as I can because he's not going to play forever. And I want to just be there as many as many times as I can. And, you know, Arsenio and I were there that last game with Adam Levine and, and these guys in the front row. And uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, I've ever, ever been as surprised or excited or as jubilant as I was that day with those guys watching Kobe play. Wow. Yeah, man, I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely gonna miss, uh, gonna miss, uh, miss the Mamba. Um, I told the, I told the talk, I told the talk, the show that I was on the, I was on the show, the talk show on CBS the day of the show, and I said it's the only relationship in my life where 20 years later I'm more in love than I was in the beginning. <laughs> hey, hey, George, I told you I'm holding out hope for you. There's, there's gonna be something. There's gonna be something good. There's gonna be a little fairy tale here. Okay. Um, All right, man. You, people heard it. You, you know what? I'm, I'm, uh, last couple questions for you. If you could have dinner with any comedian, dead or alive, who would you want to have dinner with, and why? Um, you know, I, I, I would. You know, I would probably say, and this is, I'll probably say Freddie Prince because Freddie Prince inspired me. He died when he was 22. He committed suicide. He had come from New York with some issues. Uh, probably was maybe manic depressive, maybe bipolar. Uh, you know, I, I became friends with his son. I became friends with his widow. I, I got his star on the Walk of Fame, and I would, I would love to have dinner with him to see if there was any way that I could, that I could help him. I, I would love, I would love that. You know. And yeah. just to say, hey man, I, I yeah. got you, man. You know? Yeah, people, people, people need that. Who who does that for you? Who, who who's gotten you? Yeah, um, um, Carlos Santana is a great mentor uh, of mine. Edward James almost is a great mentor of mine. Um, uh, um, uh, 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 Cheech, you know those guys. Cheech and I kind of come from the same neighborhood, and Arsenio. And you know people like that that I've known a long time that that you know you go to and and those are your guys that are there all the time. I love that. Last two, um, uh, George. We always talk about dreaming fearlessly. If you were going to give advice to a younger George, what would you tell him about dreaming fearlessly? I would say that um, uh, don't be afraid because it's ultimately it's there's only two things that can happen. You can do well or you could not do well. You could either go on stage or not go on stage. You could only fail or succeed. And I said, I would tell him to take, to not have failure be an option and just don't look back, look forward and, and just keep digging. Hey, George, uh, bless you. Thank you for coming on the show. I hope it won't be the last time. And no. uh, I, ho I hope the world gets healthy and you and I will go uh, maybe watch LeBron versus Kawhi, uh, see who can do what. I'd love to uh, love to do that with you. Yeah, man. All right, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please let your friends know. They can find us on the Apple Podcasts, the Art Heart Radio app, or wherever else they listen to podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.